If you would, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Tonight we'll be focusing in on 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, but we'll go ahead and set the context beginning in chapter 5, verse 1, and read down through verse 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven, so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, in these verses that we have just read, we see the Apostle Paul rebuking the Corinthians on account of their great wickedness and tolerating sin, and calling them back to live in accordance with the holiness which was already theirs as believers in Christ. And in doing that, he makes mention here of this great fact that Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Though we read the eight verses here of this chapter, we're going to be focusing mostly on this one sentence. Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. As one writer observed, Paul packs a volume of theology in a rather short sentence. How much theology is right there in one short sentence? Now, as we think about this tonight, we'll think first of all about what the Passover was. We'll consider secondly how Christ is our Passover. And thirdly, we'll consider how we must live in light of the fact that Christ is our Passover and that he has been sacrificed for us. Now, we heard earlier in our scripture reading from Exodus 12 about the historical circumstances of the Passover. We remember how in the events leading up to the Passover, the Lord had sent the various plagues on the people of Egypt. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he refused to let the Israelites go. And then finally, the Lord announced that there would be one plague, a final plague, plague of the firstborn, in which the firstborn of all of Egypt would die. And after that, then Pharaoh would let his people go. But, as we saw, the Lord provided a way by which his people would be spared from the plague. Each household was to take a lamb, an unblemished male, a year old. The lamb was to be slain at twilight on the 14th day of the month, which the month was called Nisan. Or, if there was a household that was too small to consume a lamb, they could share a lamb with one of their neighbors. 
They were to put that blood of the lamb on their, on their two doorposts and across the, the lintel over the top of the doorframe. The lamb was to be roasted with fire and eaten with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And all was to be eaten that night with none left over until the morning. If any was left over that was uneaten, it was to be burned. This was the Lord's Passover. The blood that was put over the house was a sign. The Lord promised that when he saw the blood, he would pass over and that no plague would fall upon them. The Egyptians would be judged and punished, but the Lord would spare his people because of the blood of the Lamb. This was the Passover. And then connected with the Passover was the ordinance of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. To commemorate the deliverance which had been given by the Lord, the Israelites were commanded to keep a feast throughout their generations, beginning on the 14th of the month of Nisan and stretching till the 21st day of the month, they were to keep this feast. And on the first day of the feast, they were to remove all of the, the leaven, all of the yeast from their dwellings, and for seven days then to eat unleavened bread. According to Deuteronomy 16, verse 3, unleavened bread is the bread of affliction. This was the bread that they were to eat so as to remind themselves of the affliction of Egypt and the haste with which they had to come out of Egypt. We learn from Numbers 9 that it was necessary to be ceremonially clean in order to participate. That ceremonial cleanliness was to represent spiritual purity. It was to represent holiness, that the people were set apart for the Lord. And so this was the Passover. It was a memorial of this redemption as God delivered his people from the judgment which was coming upon the Egyptians and led them out of bondage. And the Israelites were to keep this feast perpetually, year by year, to preserve the memory of what the Lord had done for them. He had spared them, but he had struck the Egyptians. But this Passover not only pointed back to the past, to what had already happened, it also pointed ahead to something that at that time was still future. It became a saying among some of the ancient Jews that in the month of Nisan they were redeemed, and in the month of Nisan they will be redeemed. And so it was that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came into the world to fulfill the law and the prophets, went up to Jerusalem celebrate the Passover. He entered into the city on what we commemorate as Palm Sunday as the city was getting ready for the feast. That feast was to begin on the 14th day of the month, which would have been on Thursday. So we find in Mark chapter 14, verse 12, that on the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent them to find that upper room where he would celebrate with them, knowing that the celebration was pointing back to the past, but was also pointing to the very near future as well. We find his words in Luke twenty-two fifteen, where he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And it was while they were still at the table that Jesus used the bread the unleavened bread and the wine to institute the Lord's Supper with his disciples. The blood representing his body, which was very shortly to be given for them, and the wine representing the blood of the covenant, which would be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. The Passover that they were celebrating that night 
was pointing to the even greater Passover that was about to take place. The Passover was both a memorial of something past and also pointing forward to something yet to come. So Jesus knew full well at that time what the coming hours held in store for him. He knew that the Son of Man would go just as it was written of him. He knew that one eating that meal with him would be the one who would betray him. He knew that before the rooster crowed, Peter would deny him three times. And so it turned out. And we know the story how Jesus sweated profusely, that his sweat became like drops of blood in Gethsemane while he cried out, Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. We know how while Jesus was there, Judas was yet leading a mob there for Christ to be arrested. And while Christ was pouring out his soul in prayer, the rest of the disciples could not even stay awake. We know how Christ was arrested and taken, how he was condemned by the high priest in the Sanhedrin, how he was taken to Pontius Pilate, and how, given the choice, the crowd preferred to have a murderer, Barabbas, released to them instead of their Messiah. We know how Jesus was handed over to be crucified, how he was whipped and forced to carry the cross, how he was crucified at Golgotha between two thieves, how he was ridiculed by the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people. We know how they said, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. And we know of the darkness that came over the whole land that Friday afternoon from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, what would be in our terms from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock, and how Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we know how shortly thereafter he gave out a loud cry and died. He gave up his spirit. In all of this, Jesus was giving his life as a ransom for many. And in this, we are redeemed, as Peter says, with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And thus it is, as we've seen, that Paul can drop this one sentence that is so rich in all of its theological implications here in 1 Corinthians 5. For Christ, our Passover, has also been sacrificed. Now we've seen what the Passover was. Now how is it that Christ is our Passover? Well, the answer is really quite simple. Just as the Passover lamb caused the judgment of God to pass over the households of those who were under its blood, even so, the judgment of God passes over all of those who are under the blood of Christ. The Passover in Egypt was, as it were, a small picture of what was coming, both in terms of judgment and mercy. The judgment demonstrated there in Egypt, terrible as it was, was just a small picture of the judgment of God that will one day be poured out on all of the entire world. And the mercy of God that was shown there to the Israelites, as great and as wonderful as it was, was really just a small picture of the great mercy that would one day be poured out when he to whom the Passover pointed would be slain. All who take refuge under the blood of Christ receive not merely a physical deliverance from a physical slavery as in the Passover of old, but rather an eternal deliverance 
through the forgiveness of their sins. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Peter called him a lamb, uh, unblemished and spotless. And we saw how in the uh, passage that Jim read for us from John 19, not a bone of him was broken. If you keep on reading in Exodus 12, that's, that's, where, that's where it's written in the scriptures that not a bone of the Passover was to be broken. If you keep on, keep on reading in Exodus chapter 12, that's, that's where it is. And in this way, we, we see some of the, the imagery fulfilled. Passover lamb's bones could not be broken, and nor could Christ's bones be broken. Similarly, John the Baptist called him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And our Jesus did that when he offered himself unblemished to God. Just as the Passover lamb was required to be an unblemished male, even such was our Lord Jesus Christ. He was a truly righteous man, and yet at the same time he was also true God. He was, on the one hand, the seed of the woman who was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin, and yet he is also the eternal word who was God and was with God in the beginning. In order to be our Savior, he had to be both. He had to be both God and man. We read in Hebrews 2.17 that he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things to pertain to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to be one of us in order to die for us, to render himself up as a sacrifice for us. He had to be like us in order to be a mediator and a priest for us. But at the same time, no mere creature could bear the wrath of God for the sins of the world. And so Psalm 49, verses 7 through 9 reminds us, No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever, that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. The Savior that we require must be almighty in order to suffer and take away our sins and give righteousness to us. And such is our Jesus, the Lamb of God, true God and true man, Son of David and the unblemished Lamb of God. And even as the Passover lamb was to be eaten, so it is even with Christ. We feed upon Christ. And though this is done through faith, through believing in Christ and not eating according to the flesh, but nevertheless, we do feed on Christ. Even as Jesus said in John 6, 53 and 54, when he said, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. If I may borrow the words of Augustine, Believe, and thou hast eaten already. This is Christ, our Passover, who has been sacrificed for us. And all who feed upon him by faith and take refuge under his blood are delivered from the judgment that is to come. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The judgment is taken away, sins are forgiven, we are received into fellowship with God. Even as John says in 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. And that brings us back then to the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and how we must live in light of the Passover that has been sacrificed for us. 
the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if we were forced to make a choice between the two, is more practical than theological. Paul is not, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, laying out a very dense theological argument, the way, uh, the way that he does in some of the places in Galatians or in the book of Romans, for instance. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is dealing with a very practical matter in church life, how the church should respond to immorality in its midst. They had been arrogant and boasting about the immorality, and Paul warns them that this is not good. And he warns them that a little leaven, he says, leavens the whole lump. Just as it doesn't take but a little bit of yeast to uh, leaven an entire lump of dough, so also just a little bit of sin, a little bit of ungodliness within the church can do great harm and damage to the church. And so he counsels them to clean out the, the old leaven so that they may be a new lump. And he tells them that they are, in fact, already unleavened. And the reason why they already are unleavened is found in those words that we're considering tonight. Why are they an unleavened loaf? Answer, for Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. They already are unleavened because Christ had been sacrificed for them. In other words, they had already been made holy. They had already been set apart to the Lord because of Christ's sacrifice for them. And what Paul is here doing is calling them to live out in practical terms the truth of who they really already were in Christ. As so often in the New Testament, the indicative becomes the basis for the imperative. What was objectively true of them forms the basis for Paul's instruction. You are holy. Now you need to live like it. They had already been made holy in Christ and received the forgiveness of sins by grace through faith And now they must live out this holiness that they had received. And this is what Paul is getting at there in verse 8, where he says, Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And in calling these believers to celebrate the feast, he's not commanding them to celebrate the Passover, nor is he giving instructions about the Lord's Supper, but rather he's comparing the Christian life itself to a feast, the feast of unleavened bread which followed the slaying of the Passover lamb and was to be kept without leaven. Paul says, live the rest of your lives without this leaven, meaning without this sin. Turn from it and live this unleavened life. Keep the feast. Chrysostom noted here that Paul was pointing out that the whole time, the whole of time, is a festival unto Christians because of the excellency of the good things that have been given. For what has not come to pass that is good. The Son of God was made man for you. He freed you from death and called you to a kingdom. You, therefore, who have obtained and are still obtaining such things, how can it be less than your duty to keep the feast in all of life? Let no one then be downcast about poverty and disease or the craft of enemies, for it is a festival even the whole of our time. Paul says, keep the feast. Life now is to be lived in this festive mentality that we have been brought to new life. We must throw out the sin. We must live godly lives and keep the feast in this fashion. The leaven, of course, that Paul warns about has nothing to do with bread, but rather sin. And so we're to keep the feast We're to keep the Christian life with this unleavened bread of sincerity and truth as opposed to the leaven of malice and wickedness.
And so then, since our Passover lamb has been sacrificed, brothers and sisters, and since in the words of Hebrews 10.10, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, let's keep the feast in holiness. Proverbs 15.15 tells us that a cheerful heart has a continual feast. And so in light of all that we've received in Christ, let's rejoice continually and have a perpetual feast in Him. Let's live as justified and sanctified people. Let's live as those people which we truly are because of Christ's sacrifice. And let's put away every form of wickedness. May it no more be named among us. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for for Christ and his great work for us. Lord, we ask that we would live as those whom you have changed. Lord, indeed, you have changed us in calling us to yourself, justifying us, adopting us, giving us holiness. Lord, we ask that our lives would more and more reflect that holiness, that great fact that we're set apart for you. We pray that our lives would manifest that and that we would love holiness and that we would, that we would hate the leaven of wickedness and sin. We thank you for Christ and for his great grace towards us. And we thank you for uh, the joy and privilege of being part of Christ's body. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.